Welcome to episode 203 of No Challenges Remaining. I am Ben Rothenberg, joined by my dear friend Courtney Nguyen. Welcome back to America, Courtney. Thank you, Ben. And I think it's weird that after all this time, after over 200 episodes of NCR, and uh-huh. as Mary Carrillo pointed out, well over 200. Yeah. You, I'm, I've, I haven't been promoted past dear friend. Well, it's always I'm your dear friend. <laughs> What would you and like? And it's like weird. I don't know, dude. Like, like it's common just, it's law little... wife at this point? Or what do you, what do you say? <laughs> work wife? Work wife might work. That's Not okay. common law. We don't live together, Brad. We, no, we don't. You know, it feels so. like it, but It does really. sometimes, but no. Um, okay. Well, whatever titles you guys can suggest, what kind of titles we have for, for Courtney here. Yeah. Work wife. I don't want to see those tweets. <laughs> <laughs> you asked for it. You asked for a promotion. No, you gotta, I, you know... I wasn't asking for a promotion. I was just observing the fact that a promotion has yet to be given over the course of 203 plus episodes of this wonderful, charming, slightly bit struggle bunny-esque podcast. Yeah, there you go. On this show, we're going to catch up on things that happened in the last month, and it was a pretty busy month in tennis. I feel like we say this every year, but February is always a low-key, pretty loaded month in tennis. And this year, there were a couple other things to add to that even further. The Jeannie Bouchard trial touched on very, very briefly, where I just was the last week. Uh, Patrick Kvitova coming back, Ryan Harris and Donald Young, Darko, sorts of stuff happened in the last month or so that we will catch up on. Uh, Why don't we start with just stuff from this past week, Courtney? You've been back home for a week, and there were four tour events this week, and they were won by Diego Schwartzman in Rio, Francis Tiafo in Delray Beach, Alina Svitolina in Dubai, and... Doha. No, she won in Dubai. Just kidding, Dubai. Yeah, I was going to say, you were in <laughs> Doha. What are you talking about? Once, uh, I, once I said it, I realized, I was like, no, I think I'm very, very wrong here. But let's just see how this plays out. Okay, let's do it. <laughs> it's, it's a little too early to sneak things by me. And uh, Allison Van Oytvank in Budapest. I think that was all the events. Any, any particular thoughts on those four champs? Francis, Diego, Allison, and Elena. Yeah, I mean, four very like worthy champions i mean i was super happy for diego schwartzman i'm just a big diego schwartzman fan i just think he's just wonderful i think it's great that you know little diego schwartzman can you know and has over the course of the last year and a half like really proven that he can compete along with everyone else and and the mm-hmm. big boys and, and especially on the atp side where everything has gotten bigger and stronger and about you know power and all these sorts of things that he's been able to kind of like craft and carve out this uh awesome career for himself is great. So um, big Diego Schwartzman fan. Super happy for Francis Tiafo. Great great tournament for him down in Delray. Um, what, he beat Shapovalov? Yeah, he beat Shapovalov and Chung. in the semis, Chung in the quarters, and Del Potro in the second round. Yeah, I mean, that's legit. That's I mean, a you legit can't take for anything. Delray's not usually a tough title, but that was a tough road. Yeah, for sure. So super happy for him. I think that's great. Uh, Svitolina doing what Svitolina do. Um, two titles already this year co-leads the tour along with Petra uh, Kvitova defends her title in Dubai played a great final um, super aggressive it was it was really great to see kind of overshadowed what was a remarkable week for uh, Daria Kasatkina mm-hmm. um, who saved two match points against Kanta and then three match points against Muguruza to uh, make her third uh, tournament final I think um, so yeah she was gassed in the end but it was great and it was a great showcase for her new partnership with uh, Philip de Haas 
um, the Belgian coach who people love kinda... that coach, those coaching. Panels. Yeah, no, they were great, and and we can talk more about that later. But um, they were just so positive, and he's a he's a really cool guy. Like he's he's really chill. Highly recommend if any reporters are are listening in to, that he's worth kind of like pulling aside and and having a talk with. Um, so um, yeah, uh, and then Allison van Oetvank. I mean, huge upset to beat top seed Dominika Sabolkova out in. Uh, in Budapest and uh and yeah I mean I love that Van Oitbank kind of sticks her head up every once in a while and uh and does a thing and I know that you do as well Ben of course as as I, as the hashtag says tennis needs gingers and I feel like ginger tennis is in a pretty good place right now we take we claim Rublev and Rublev's had a good run and Van Oitbank is the gingeriest <laughs> of all the gingers and her winning an indoor tournament we must say played to ginger strengths was was great and, and it's good to see her back after having some pretty prolonged injury issues but she was still off tour this time last year i think i want to say yeah no she's she's been struggling and her ranking dropped by a lot and um you know former french open uh, quarterfinalist yeah i mean she just has this way of kind of like putting together one run a year where where you really kind of sit up and take notice but um hopefully uh this means that her injury struggles are behind her and she can kind of like cobble together things and get right back up inside the top 50 where she she once was but yes ginger tennis is alive and kicking let's let's go back to you said mentioned later when we just mentioned it now uh daria kasakina's run in doha sorry dubai now i'm doing it um she made the sorry. final and what what was yeah describe more about what her run was and why philip was so impressive to people who were listening to that coaching timeout and why it also seems like related question it always seems like she in particular daria dasha dashka has this like it seems to be very coachable and coaches always come off well with her or at least the small sample size that i'm thinking yeah of. no that's a very good point obviously a longtime coach um was vlado platenic who mm-hmm. their coaching timeouts were always must see tv he was always really great um probably less positive like overtly positive than de Haas is um but uh, but very technical and and was really good at kind of just like snapping her back into into place um but they did split obviously last year in the fall she brought in de Haas and um and so far it's been really great I mean he's really excited to coach her she's really excited to kind of like have a different voice and one of the things that was really clear towards the end of her partnership with Platenic is that she really wanted to and I think that that Vlado actually wanted her to do this as well um, but she wanted to play more by instinct um, that I, th- I feel like they both felt that maybe, you know, she had become a little bit too regimented, a little bit too predictable. And if you've ever watched Daria Kasatkina play, that's just not how she when she plays her best tennis. I mean, she needs some discipline and she needs to know the patterns and the basics and things like that. But the reason why she's so fun to watch is because it is unpredictable. She can do everything on the court. She can play, she can kind of softball you. She has a good, powerful forehand and backhand. She can kind of do a little bit of everything. She has great touch at the net. Mm-hmm. So under De Haas, I feel like she's being encouraged, continuing to be encouraged to do that. Uh, and it all came together, you know, uh, this week in, in Dubai. Um, the way that I described it on Twitter is, is you know, I've been a big Kazakina fan or I've, I've loved watching her ever since she had that breakout run at the U.S. Open a few years ago mm-hmm. uh, as a lucky loser. And the reason why is because like a lot of times you're going to watch her and you're going to watch her matches. And you're going to watch her tournaments and it's going to be the equivalent of like watching like a violinist play off tune and not realize that their violin's not 
is, is out of tune. That sounds horrible. So, yeah, so you're kind of watching, you're wincing, and you're like, seriously, it's not that hard. All you have to do is just fix this one thing, and it would all come off. And sometimes that is what it's like watching Kasakina play. She has so many options that when she chooses the wrong ones, she gets blitzed, you know, in the early rounds, and it's frustrating. But when it all comes together, which it did this week, it's so fun to watch. Like, she's just, she can hit every shot, the slice, the kick the forehand, the heavy topspin, the defense, the counterpunching, the aggression, it's all there. So it was just really cool to see her kind of pull that together this week. And as you said, you know, with her new coaching partnership with Haas, I think that one thing that this week really, really showed, uh, because the thing is, is that, you know, if she's, these coaching timeouts are happening, you know, at other tournaments and they're happening on secondary courts, um, but nobody's paying attention. But here in Dubai, she was playing against Joe Conta. She was playing against, you know, Garbina Muguruza, um, you know, against Alina Svitolina. So she was on the main show court. It's the Dubai Duty Free Tennis Championships where they bring in uh, a lot of British commentators mm -hmm. to come do the world feed. So Annabelle Croft is there. I think David Mercer as well. They flew in Ravi as well. And um, it, whether we want to admit it or not it does matter when the brits are paying attention hmm. that's just kind of how it happens in in tennis because they are one of the the most devoted you know at least from the press corps perspective followers of the sport um and so when they see something they have a microphone that a lot of other other uh, country affiliations don't have i guess so it was a combination of things where people were paying attention it was in a good time zone she was on the show courts um, she was in these dramatic matches where the Haas's advice actually became even more poignant and, and dramatic and interesting in those moments. And people who have microphones were caring about what was going on with Daria Kasatkina. And that is not always the case on a week in, week out basis. So it was kind of it all kind of all came together for Dasha um, in Dubai. And I think that it was a great week for her. And I think that most importantly, even though she, she was gassed in the final against Fidelina, lost four in love. Um, I think that the biggest takeaway from her week there is that the partnership with Dahas is working because they got, you know, um, a bit of a disappointing start to the season. So right. hopefully India Wells, Miami uh, and Charleston, where she'll, she's, she's defending. Uh, we'll, we'll get to see the best Dasha. And that's been a good part of the calendar for her historically. So that should be, um uh yeah interesting to see how she develops and she's obviously serena williams's favorite player so at least one person is <laughs> is pulling for her she's like i think she's sort of become you know in the sat structure question like kasakina is to serena as caroline garcia is to andy murray i think it's fair <laughs> to say at this point i love that yeah that's true it's your, it's your your tennis analogy for the young wta players um it briefly on tiafo who won his title also his came more out of nowhere i think than well, I, I think fairly out of nowhere this month. He, we saw him, both of us, I think. I think you went up watched him in Brisbane, too, and he got blitzed by Matt Ebden. I did. And he also lost first round in the main draw of, Austra of Melbourne, I'm pretty sure. Anyway, he just hasn't won a lot of tour matches, period. He came into the month of February having won only nine career main draw matches which for somebody who's gotten the amount of honestly attention and hype that francis siafo's gotten is pretty meager and they weren't too many like marquee wins in there either he beat sasha zverev in cincinnati last year but that was after zverev had gone back to back titles in washington and canada and was pretty 
pretty beat or pretty wiped out. For the, for Tiafo to do this is pretty great. He weighed quarters of New York last week too. So I don't have much more to say other than it's like a very positive swing and I hope he can sustain it because we have not seen anything close to this for him. I feel, I, feel, I just feel like that's a distinction that kind of has to be made because I feel like he's a name that all tennis fans, especially American tennis fans, have probably heard a lot about. But this first title is still like a pretty big, steep step that he took this week and with not that much buildup. Yeah, I would totally agree with that. I mean, you know my thoughts on Francis. I mean, I have been pretty vocal, at least privately, maybe not on the podcast, but I, I have never been massively impressed with him. I think that there's a lot of yeah. uh, technical issues with his game, um, despite the fact that he's an incredible athlete and that's going to take him super far. And if he can kind of hone in, sometimes he just looks like like Bambi on ice. Shots could look very jerky. You know, there's a lot of flailing, a lot of off-balancedness that... Yeah, exactly. And, and and he can get away with it because he's just that good of an athlete. But yeah, you kind of felt like under pressure and, you know, the technique would fail. At least that's how I felt. So I've never been massively big on Francis, but this was an incredible week for him. And, you know, to get the wins that he got um, the way that he did um, and to close out those matches in, in, in pressure situations. I mean, I think that, that, that that's a huge leap forward. And I think that you're right. I mean, out of Everybody that won titles this week, that is the one that that is the most surprising and and, and not surprising because um, I like the way that you phrased it, which is that it was the biggest leap forward. Right, for sure. And I think that he was the first guy. He is the first guy born in 1998 to win a title on the ATP. Um, he just turned 20 last month, about almost exactly a month ago. Um, so he's still young. He's still got time, but it's just an impressive sort of. I was sort of saying, I was saying after how bad that Brisbane match was, and I know it was like New Year's Day, I probably stayed up late, you know, on New Year's Eve or something the night before, but he just looked, I was thinking just it was time to really pump the brakes on Tiafo hype, and maybe it still is. Maybe this will like accelerate it more than it should this one week, but it's at least a very positive trend in the right direction for a guy who probably needed a big tour result this year to sort of keep himself on track and not get passed by by the rest of his uh, generation. His ranking's been pretty up and down. He built his ranking. He's actually, I was surprised to see, or to double check, that he's up to 61 this week, which is not his career high ranking. He got up to, like, number 60 last spring based just solely on challenger results. So, Which is, I think, is a fast... I mean, I always think that's a really interesting thing because so many of the, the, the guy players, the, the, the guys, like, they have this level of hype, like a Francis or some of the other players that... You know, and maybe this is actually a very American thing, so I don't know. Maybe I'm completely wrong in what I'm saying, but like, I feel like so many of the guy players that have like a significant amount of hype of being like the future of American tennis are still like completely battling away on the challenger circuit. As of right now, I mean, yeah, because both Tiafo and Fritz cooled off. Fritz was on tour, but then fell back. Yeah, but yeah, I don't know. I. I'm just talking. I don't know <laughs> if what I'm saying makes sense, but it, in a way that I kind of feel less is less true with the the women who are playing on the challenger circuit. You know what I mean? Like, like I feel like if for the women, like if you're a thing, you're playing on the tour level, and unless you're like a player, like a you know the Petkoviches or whatever, who's who's had this dramatic you know fall in the rankings and are forced to play those events like Skivoni or what or Laura Robson or whatever, but for the most part, if you're a player that we think has a pretty big upside, 
you're already on tour on some level. And that just probably speaks to how low the bar is for American men's hype right now. That, like, we can still hype you even if you're not a tour-level yeah, player. okay. Maybe. I, th- I think that's probably a, a blunt assessment of it. I mean, like, they do like those, like, you know, like, <laughs> the photo spread they did in whatever magazine or whatever it was that wound up being the photo in your cubicle of the U.S. Open about the American guys. <laughs> um, and all of you can guess which young American player was posted up in Courtney's cubicle. Like, it was the inside of, all, of her locker. First of all, you're making it sound so creepy. It was... <laughs> No, but you put it up. I get, it wasn't like I put I know, it up. But you, but yeah, but you didn't take it down. I'll say that. Well, because you put it up, it would have been rude. Fair. Fair. It's like sort of the um. <laughs> it's like Elton in Clueless, where you put up the photo not because who it was of, but because of who like gave it to you. Exactly. It's a very specific it was reference very that Elton. hopefully somebody gets. But yes, Jared 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 Donaldson plays Ty in this scenario. <laughs> Just natural, tie? natural casting. Why would I get with Ty? But to be clear, you're not saying that about Jared Donaldson, who you no. feel very warmly Hold about. Hold on, I adore Jared. I adore his game. No, I do not want to get with Jared Donaldson. That's not what I, I meant. Just That's want to not get what that I meant. out there. You know what I mean? That's pretty clearly what you were implying. Which I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna go on record and saying, I find him adorable, like a puppy. Let's move on to uh, <laughs> your trip to Russia and Qatar, which are the two next World Cup hosts, coincidentally. That's true. Men's World Cup. Thoughts on, on what Petra Kudova did at both those tournaments? Just get to her. She won both those titles. She You've did. followed her and watched her win a whole lot of tennis. Yeah, no. I mean, anybody who knows me knows that I am perfectly happy to be on Petra Kvitova watch. So the fact that for her to, to win those two titles um, and to just play the way that she's playing and to just, I mean, to, to remain Petra, um, I think is... You know, more than the titles, more than anything else, is is still, to me, the most remarkable thing of the last, you know, 12 months. Is that never throughout any of my interactions with her since what happened in in December 2016, um, has she ever been anything less than herself? Like, she still is super chilled out, incredibly nice, incredibly thoughtful, like, super normal um and open and um you know it's so you know kind of getting to spend two weeks with Petra where you are talking to her every day it kind of reminded me a little bit about like um the last Asian swing with Caroline Garcia Mm -hmm. where I mean I was effectively through Wuhan and Beijing like talking to to Caroline like every single day and um, to the point where you you're kind of both laughing a little bit about the absurdity of the situation because there just comes a point where I do not have questions for her that aren't match related, and right. she's kind of like like just comically having to see me after every single one of her matches. And um, so with Petra, it was it was a little bit similar in in Saint Petersburg and and in Doha, but I can't I can't say enough about just what she's doing or what she did at least in February, the players, the quality of players that she beat, beating Ostapenko, beating Wozniacki, beating uh, Muguruza, um, and doing it not in necessarily an easy way. And I think the most telling thing about Petra's run in February um, was I did a champion's corner with her in Doha and we were just kind of chatting. And I was just like, you know, there's a, I get the sense that if I were to tell you, Hey, you know, we saw the best of Petra Kvitova. In February, I mean, you're winning 13 straight matches. You're beating like four, five, six, seven, top ten players, three top five players, whatever. 
if I were to tell you, oh, this is peak Petra, that you would completely disagree with me. And she's like, yeah, no, I don't think I've played the best at all. <laughs> and I think that that is what was, and I agree with her 100%. I don't think that she actually played outside of the of the St. Petersburg final against Bledenovich. I actually don't. That was good. That was good. That was peak Petra. But outside of that, like she's really had to fight and battle and fight herself and get past the good opponents. So um, tip of the cap. Amazing. Petra's awesome. She's just a good, she's just good people. So it's, it's nice to see good things happen to good people. Mentioning another match that she won pretty easily. uh, You mentioned, you mentioned, I think in your list of matches was Ostapenko. What do you make of Ostapenko has not had a good start in 2018 at all. Nope. How concerned should people be? Because, I mean, the amazing thing about her 2017, obviously the French Open title is the most amazing thing, but that she really backed it up the rest of the year. I mean, like, she – that she was, like, the first major – first-time major winner in a long time to make the quarters of her next Grand Slam event. Um, that was impressive, doing that Wimbledon and then winning Seoul and playing well enough in Singapore. Um I don't know that I would have expected her to fall off as steeply as she has in 2018, but she has not been impressive at all, I don't think. What what do you sense is behind it, having been around her these past couple weeks? I mean, what's behind it? I I think that maybe some some poor decision-making during the off-season and Mm. preseason, just in terms of all of those exhibitions that she was playing and flying all across the globe, like... You know, from from Riga to Thailand, back to Riga to Abu Dhabi, and back, and then this not is... a lot of direct flights to Riga. Yeah, so I, I don't think that that's what you want to be doing, regardless of how young you are, um, ahead of what could be like a very very big season for you. That being said, I think that okay, why is why does Yelena Ostapenko hold this kind of mythical, you know? like centurion uh you know space in in our minds of just being this like impossible thing that exists it's because we know that it doesn't matter none of this matters the loss that she takes one week has no impact on the loss that she take or the win that she gets next week she's just i don't think in my opinion i don't think that she's a player that you can look at and say um Oh, here are the data points of the the weeks leading up into her, you know, next tournament. And oh, those data points say there's she's got no chance at that tournament. She's a player that has proven, and you know, the French Open is all you need to know is is that she's a player that's proven that when she gets hot, she's unstoppable. And that is what is exciting about her. If she was just like this big hitter who um I don't know, almost like in a in a in a Petra Kavitova vein where um you know petra does actually need to kind of roll into a tournament with some momentum like it, it's harder for her to manufacture it so if if ostapenko was in that um that category i don't think that we would be as hype about her because she would be a secondary petra you know we already yeah. have that player but the reason why she's yelena ostapenko is because on any given day you have no idea what's going to happen that's, and so this guess, is yeah, this is the flip more, side of even it. Though, even though that's something you would probably say about Kvitova too, but I guess she's even more extreme in that direction. Maybe but I, I, but... all, all that sounds all that sounds right, but she was stringing together wins consistently in 2017 at some points. You know, she was like not giving yeah, too many but dud days. She had a good tournament in St. Petersburg. She lost to Petra. 
Like, you know badly. what I mean? Like, badly. Yeah. Badly. But that's but that was a matchup that all of us were joking about, like, in St. Petersburg, that we were like, either way, that is a short match. Yeah, that's true. Right? Either, either Petra rolls or Ostapenko mm-hmm. rolls. But that's not going to be a two-and-a-half-hour grind fest. You know, one of them was going to get blitzed because one okay. of them was going to get hot and then just start blasting and it was what it was, you know? She has taken bad losses. There's no way around that. Um... I again, I do think that the, the preseason was not ideal, and I I would not recommend that sort of situation to anybody. Um, you should be focused on your tournaments. You should be focused on training for your tournaments. You should not be flying all over the globe to play exhibitions, um, regardless of how prestigious those exhibitions are. Yeah, and she just seemed like to constantly have her social calendar booked in Latvia too, from just her Instagram story. It's like constantly concerts. I don't know how many times I've seen her Instagram story of an Intars Brasulis concert, who was the guy who represented Latvia in the 2009 Eurovision and came in last. But she's seen him perform a lot. I know that. And it seems like maybe maybe cool in on the Intars Brasulis. I mean, it's it's one of those weird things of like, I don't begrudge her any of that. No, I mean... Right? Like, I, I don't live your her. life. Like, do your thing. You deserved it, but... It has consequences. It has consequences. Yeah. Um, that was very, I feel like that was very um, crotchety of me. That's sort of like, these kids today is in their rock music concerts. It was very, it was very weirdly parenty of both of us. Of like, know. you know, you can do whatever you're going to do, but, you know, you touch that stove, you're going to get burned. So I don't know what to tell you. Another person who, who Petra beat uh, en route to a title was Carolyn Wozniacki, who she beat in the final, uh, tem- semis of Semis, Doha. yeah. Yeah, um, Wozniacki is hung on to number one. Uh, has maybe solidified that a little bit, and now that no. Simona Halep is it turns tomorrow. Oh, Simona Halep will return to number one on February twenty sixth. <laughs> the, the more you know. Uh, so as we round out Carolyn Wozniacki's <laughs> run at number one, uh, let's look back at what she did at number one. Which I think the most notable thing, um, unfortunately for her, was kind of a lot of complaining. I feel like Wozniacki in the last few years, and I don't know if it was she's always this way, even at the beginning of her career, or if it's just people noticing it more now, or it's gotten more aggressive. But Kelly Wozniacki picks a lot of sort of fights with chair empires. And I, my favorite Wozniacki stat on this is that she got DQ'd from the U.S. Open as a junior, which I feel like people don't talk about. Oh, for throwing um, the racket? No, it was for like, it was for some sort of like, I have never heard a definitive, I've never asked her about it actually, but I, I, I think it was, some, I've read some sort of blog post she did. I think she like did some like very mild complaint to the umpire and got DQ'd. Whoa! Maybe it was a racket. Maybe it was. A I could have. I could have sworn she threw a racket, but I don't know if mm. that was why she got DQ'd. Whatever it was, she got for anyway. some sort of behavior or something. She got DQ'd, um, and she has had this reputation as being sunshine, this nice player. But the her what she, her sort of complaints and and rant to the chair umpire against Monica Nicolescu in the first set of that match at four all was uh, definitely more shade than sunshine, and I think it definitely worked a lot of people according you talked to both of them i believe after this match is that right both monica um, and i talked to caroline not monica monica gave quotes to romanian press okay about it what, what was your sort of read on, on how that whole um incident so out? so i mean in just in terms of a factual basis yeah, uh basically what happened yeah so they they played in the uh third round uh of doha and um for anybody who has seen Monica Nicolescu play, she has a very loud, you know, uh, grunt when she hits the ball. It's quite prolonged. It's kind of a grunt and then a kind of an exhale that lasts for about two seconds. 
uh, that got under Caroline Wozniacki's skin, uh, 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 as she admitted. Um, and she started to complain to the umpire that it was intentional gamesmanship um, from Nicolescu, that, that she was intentionally doing it when Caroline was about to hit the ball. Um, she said it was the only way she can win. That's the key takeaway line. Yeah. So she uh, she was quite aggressive about it. Um, she continued to be quite vocal about it when she was asked about it in her post-match press conference, Caroline Wozniacki, um, saying she shouldn't have let it get under her skin, but it did. And she thought that, and apparently after the complaints to the umpire, so Caroline complained to the umpire, after that, Nicolescu did alter and kind of quiet down her, her grunting. Um, so Wozniacki took that to mean, at least in her response to journalists, took that to mean that Nicolescu was gaming her because once she complained, she stopped. Okay. I'm just saying what she said. Okay. So that was Wozniacki's position. She continued to, to but she didn't back off of it. She told reporters that she thought that, it, that Monica Nicolescu was being intentional and disruptive and unfair and unsportsmanlike. Now, from my experience with Monica Nicolescu, I've never found her to be that person. No. Um, she is the most earnest, like nice human being who happens to play a style of game that breaks her opponent's brains. We saw that happen in the opening round when she beat Maria Sharapova and drove Maria Sharapova into hitting absurd forehand slices. <laughs> hilarious. Everybody. They were hilarious. But so th this is just how Monica is. She's a very emotional person on court. She's very dramatic, whatever. Anyways. I was quite surprised the next day then to read Nicolescu, who apparently was told what um, Wozniacki had said um, in her post-match press conference with, or uh, interview with Romanian Press, that she was just like, I wouldn't, I'm, I wasn't doing it intentionally. This is how I play. And she had some very strong words for Caroline uh, Wozniacki about that. And that is not Monica's style at all. No, right? I was really surprised. Yeah, go-to mode, yeah. Yeah, I was really surprised. But she said, you know, she was really disappointed to hear that. She thought that the comments were unbecoming of a world number one, mm. um, which is, it's one of those savage things that, like, you kind of, like, never say. Like, you know what I mean? Anyways, so, yeah, it was a whole thing. I mean, I just... Monica Nicolescu was not doing it on purpose. That's my expert opinion. If I was called to court and had to testify, that's what I would testify to. There's just no way. Like that's just that's just not Monica. Um, she just happens to play a style of game that annoys the shit out of her opponents. Yeah, and Maria Sharapova can certainly testify in that case. Absolutely. Also. Yeah. I'm, I'm, now, now, after my week I spent in the Brooklyn District Court, I'm so happy to spend every week watching WTA players on trial. Um, it's just it's just interesting confluence of things. Yeah, I, I would agree with you there. I, th I think that Caroline probably should tone it down some in in the her tone and her arguments with the chair empires. It's very off putting and unbecoming, and it's her, it's her right and her prerogative. But you know, she's not that different from a sort of, and we'll get to him later, but sort of like a um, uh, a Ryan Harrison almost. Ooh. She in the way that she sort of bullies the chair and just sort of acts like she's gets to enforce all these unwritten rules on court. I guess, but I but I honestly don't think that she does bully the chair. I mean, I I've never. I mean, but you've I've, seen how the chairs have had to like snap at her recently, like the guy in Australia with the yes, whatever it was, about the late was and then and then and then Julie Shendley in Singapore. Yeah. I mean, like she certainly gets toned with chair empires that chair empires take umbrage at. No, 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 for sure. I mean, I, I was just saying that, like, 
I don't think that she, I mean, to say that she's a bully would be to imply that there's an effect. You know what I mean? Like, you're right. Attempted bullying. Well, yeah, yeah it's, it's a little bit more attempted than actual. Like, I don't think that, like, umpires are necessarily, like, backing off. If anything, it's encouraged them. I don't know. Yeah. It seems like they're, like, very, like, they put their foot down, which is, like, weird. Um, but uh, not not weird in a bad way. Just, like, I don't know. The, the, those interactions between her and the chair umpires are always, like, very... They make me uncomfortable. I don't like them. They're not great, no. <laughs> no, just, um, not because they're not great, but just because, like, I just, like, no, stop. Why? Why Why? Why fighting? No fighting. Yeah. Like, not necessary. On both That's sides, fair. you know what I mean? Like, I'm just like, uh. And I just think she's not a very good, like, you know how you, you joked about um, Agnieszka Radwanska JD? You know, <laughs> yes. At, like, as. Aga is 2-0. Two and Ar- oh this year with her arguing. Aga is very good at, at filing motions and getting things overturned and all that sort of stuff. Caroline does not have the Aga skills. Um, so maybe she should go to school in her own terms. Caroline Wozniacki is the outgoing WTA number one. Um, the incoming ATP number one we can talk about is Roger Federer. That was a really good segue, dude. A lot of people said, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> a lot of people said on the, when the commented, because we mentioned, oh, if he was interested in playing number one, he'd go play Rotterdam. We said that as like a scenario on the last show, and then he wound up doing that. Um, except maybe, I don't know if he's a loyal NCR listener, in, in which case, thanks, Roger. But um, he went and played Rotterdam. He won. He got number one. He's now number one. He's the oldest male number one ever. Um, he won that title relatively straightforwardly, beating Grigor, uh, hurt Grigor straight easily in the final. Um, what do you make of Roger being back to number one? I think we both sort of said, or I certainly said, and I think you agreed, I think he's been the best player on tour for since Australia last year, or at least since, you know, he really solidified it by maybe by winning in New Wales, Miami back to back. And this feels sort of just that he's in the number one spot again, even if improbable. Yeah, no, I agree a hundred percent. I mean, he, he has been to me the number one. Um, he has played the best tennis, um, you know, uh, when he has played, right. So that he's world number one without playing, you know, on clay speaks volumes about, again, when he played, he was that good. Like he, it wasn't like he picked up points there. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's a great achievement for, I mean, I don't have anything bad to say about this. I mean, like, it's incredible. Um, it's an amazing achievement. Um, yeah, Roger's awesome. I, f- I know that that sounds like I'm being like really like flippant about it, but I don't know. I don't know what to say otherwise. Like, honestly, like. No, I, I, I think Roger has received plenty of praise in his career. doesn't need more from us. I mean, that sounds snarky, but, you know, I think that people people understand what Roger is. I, I will say I thought it was a a nice moment for the importance of the rankings that he would add Rotterdam. And I agree with about, that. Yeah, we talked about this um, with Wozniacki. I mean, in a lot. And also people should remember. Uh, when Serena last overtook number one with her active playing, i.e. not when, like, weird stuff was going on with Kerber early last year. Or I guess Australian Open. But when she's gotten back to number one, most notably after the long layoff uh, when she got back to in 2013. In Doha. In Doha. She was very emotional about that. And there's this great on-court scene with her getting there. And um, it's it's nice. It uh, There's no reason why, like, playing for ranking should be a dirty thing. It's not. Oh my gosh. It, it, I could why go, it's stigmatized, I don't get. I could go off on this for days, as you know, Ben, because I have very, mm-hmm. very strong feelings about this that you've heard before. But I just think that it's so it's so crazy to me that players 
like kill themselves or or elevate like a two week tournament and playing well over seven matches and and elevate that ahead of being the best player over 52 weeks like i don't know like for me in any job that i have ever had i just want to be the best at my job not the best that week or the best that month i don't want employee of the month i want to be the best at my job mm -hmm. and so like i totally agree with you like i think that it, it's it's i feel like that was really downplayed uh, maybe maybe it wasn't but at least from my opinion of like the fact that he was willing to alter his schedule to go and get number one that number one mattered to him um that he was you know he was incredibly emotional getting it it matters and i remember talking to garbina Muguruza in the off season about this because we were talking about number one and i was like i was telling her i was like you know you you and pliskova and kerber the only player that had number one last year um, in 2017, who was like so openly, brazenly talking about how they really wanted it and found it to be like and talked about it like it was this genuine prize was Halep. Yeah, Every, which was refreshing, which was refreshing. And she got made fun of for it. Like she 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 was like, you know, like people were just like, oh, like you can't win a slam, but you want, you know, number one, like whatever. And and her kind of like opening up and being like like i really 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 want it i feel it in my bones i feel it in my soul i want this thing like people kind of like rolled their eyes about it but like you know with pliskova with Mugrutsa, with kerber those three in particular i mean serena a little bit but but she wasn't i mean she got number one and then didn't play another match so you know it wasn't like we got an opportunity to kind of talk to her about it but Everybody else is like, oh, I don't care. Like, whatever. Like, who cares about number one? And it's like, no, you do. And Mugruta said, like, when I asked her about it, she was like, anybody who says that they don't care about number one is is lying. Right. So, and, and which then I looked at her, I was like, but you said that. <laughs> <laughs> I like, think it's stop interesting it. Also. Like, just like, I understand, like, wanting to mitigate the pressure that you put on yourself. And, but number one matters man there are fewer number ones than there are slam champions there are fewer year-end number ones than there are slam champions like how did this completely get like completely flipped around i don't understand i also think that it's interesting to me that i was just saying this for the first time here so hopefully this makes sense that like when players break through and get ranking thresholds that are lower than number one they're totally un <laughs> so true. Un unrestrainedly praised. Like Julia Gerges gets the top 10 for the first time in her career. Yeah. And it is all the yes, Julia. Yes, you're so great. <laughs> wonderful in the world. And for getting number 10, which is totally, again, a totally fair threshold, real accomplishment. Good for her. She got it. But if she'd gone to number one, it would have been like, oh, that's a little, that's a little icky. <laughs> that's so and true. And the same thing for like top 100. If someone gets top 100 for the first time, especially like a more journeyman, journeywoman type player, it's this like great career feat. But number one, for some reason, it's just still, I don't know, sort of gauche. It's, it's weird. That's the um, right. I think that's the yeah. right word to describe it, though. It's treated like it's gauche, like like people should be embarrassed about it or that it's not a real thing or that it's tacky or like something like that. And it's like, why? Like this, I mean, that thing that Rotterdam gave him, that like cardboard thing, that was kind of tacky. That was tacky. It was a little bit weird, but whatever. You know, Holland. But yeah. <laughs> But, but 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 no but i mean but roger getting there and and also and we've talked about this before there's massive monetary incentives too like i'm sure massive. rogers rogers um nike contracts pay him more like per month or for every week that he's number one definitely and and maybe rogers less than other players because he's obviously 
treated like a, a number one no matter what ranking he is in some level but but those things matter certainly for like a Halep when Halep is now getting back to number one on Monday which was news to me uh with her new Nike deal, hopefully sure it's not news to Nike <laughs> <laughs> right there's new bonuses that come with that um so yeah so that's all just be proud of number I feel there seems to be like a weird like number one pride flag that we can fly somewhere speaking of number know. one and incentives mm-hmm. and sponsorships <laughs> I feel like this is, like, something that's, like, gone under the radar, which I'm kind of fascinated by. But, like, Caroline Wozniacki won the Australian Open not wearing Stella McCartney. I am very – we talked – yeah, we talked about this during the tournament. She, yeah, ditched that outfit after the uh, Yana Fett match, I think, right? right? So – And she didn't play in it again. So I was – yeah, does she – I mean, Adidas was cool with it, and she kept – I was – what surprised me is that if she didn't like that – yellow top or whatever her issue was with the weird zipper on the side it was an odd topic isn't it that. just a gray top with like a like a, no, like it was, a it was yellow... yellow it was yellow top oh because mukaritsa wears the same one i think i think she did yeah but what anyway. surprised me about that is that uh caroline didn't switch into like an older stella outfit that she just switched to wearing whatever that kerber line is that barricade no, Whatever it's not Kerber the Kerber wears. line. It's the it's the Mildenovich line. The one that she, okay. It's that jumper, the blue, you know, jumper that um with the shorts. Kerber's wearing separates. Um okay. yeah, no, but I just I was like stunned that uh, that Stella slash Adidas would be I mean, obviously Adidas doesn't give a crap, but I don't know how those contracts work, but I was like amazed that like she was allowed to do that. Yeah. <laughs> because and then she won, which is like kind of crazy, you know? Like after all these years, she wins her Grand think, Slam title not wearing Stella. Which was I think like, I remember what? if I – am I right that she put on her, like, Stella windbreaker? She did. Yeah, yeah. She puts trophy, the jackets on. Even though it was so hot out. It was so hot. <laughs> but she true. put on her jacket, which is which is fair. You got to do what you got to do to get your get your checks. Um, speaking of – we mentioned her briefly in terms of game number one. Uh, Serena played a match, a real match, for the first time in a long time in – the unlikely venue of Asheville, North Carolina, lovely mountain town. And uh, it was a dead rubber doubles match with Venus against uh, Leslie Kirkova and Demi Schurz. Demi! Nothing but love for Demi Schurz. And Serena played and did not look great, or did, just didn't play well at all. And I don't know how much it matters. We can talk about this. It's good to see her back on court, obviously. But my main takeaways from that match were either she doesn't look ready or why did she come back so soon or she's got a long way to go as much as they were like because and i say this i obviously know all the difficulties she went through with her health and everything coming back after her childbirth and complications they're in the bed rest she was on but when she was scheduling openly for indian wells for fed cup for mass square garden exhibition and we'll see if she plays indian wells in particular in miami of those i'm not sure but I, i don't know i was just she looked like she had further to go than I expected there for someone who's been openly talking about wanting to win 25 slams, which is again, her prerogative to talk like that. But I was just, I was surprised by her performance in that match. And I don't know if I'm reading too much into it, if it's fair to read into this doubles match. What do, what do you think? Cause I think you watched that one Courtney, right? I did. That match? Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. I did. Um, I think it's always a tough balance to strike when we talk about, Serena's comeback and I've only written I think one piece on it I wrote kind of my thoughts after the Abu Dhabi exhibition Mm -hmm. and my thoughts on on everything hasn't changed 
since then, which is that it is incredible. It is amazing. It should be celebrated that she can get back on court, that she can play, that she can make things competitive. Um, because what, and as the details kind of come out about all of the, 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 um, complications with respect to her childbirth and everything, I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. I mean, like you're kind of like, as somebody who is around Serena, who wants the best for Serena, I'm kind of like, girl, stop. Like, don't try to get back on the court. Like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, take your time. There's no rush. It's fine. Like, you know, um, so there's that. But then balancing that kind of idea of like, it's amazing that you're even back on court, that you're competing, that, you know, but it's balancing that with the very realistic notion of, but you're far off of where you need to be and that the game has evolved um, quite a bit in the last 12 months, I think, personally, in terms of the quality of the competition across the board. Demi Shares has gotten a lot better. That's true. Uh huh. And mm-hmm. um, two time, yeah, uh, uh, two titles already. Demi Shores this year. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, I mean, I, I, and so it's the thing that always comes to mind for me whenever I think about Serena is that like, and her, you know, wanting to come back and everything is that like belittling the challenge. Like Serena's a superhero. She's as close as we have to a superhero in the world, um, in my opinion. But like, but, but, but at the same time, like belittling or looking down on or thinking that it's easy for her to come back or like, that is like really insulting. I kind of feel like I get like really mad about that. Like what she is trying to do is so incredibly freaking difficult that if you downplay how difficult it is, it's disrespectful to her. That's my take on it. Like, honestly. I think that's totally right. Treating it like it's inevitable that she's going to come back and I just, win slams at will is totally is, is rude to her. Is rude to the rest of the tour. It, it diminishes every. And I said I've said this a few times with Serena in recent years. I remember saying this most clearly on that noisy Scotland episode we did uh, from that <laughs> pub there when she had just lost to Muguruza in that French Open final. Yeah. And I said I think it's something along the lines of like if she doesn't win any more slams, she's had an amazing career. And, you know, so be it. And each additional slam is hard. And treating them like she's, because she's the best of her generation by a lot, that they're somehow easy or, you know, automatic, or she can sort of be far from her best and do it. And she has been far from her best from doing it. I mean, she's won slams playing Absolutely. ugly, like the 2015 French Open, most notably. She's won slams being phys- visibly not in her best physical condition, like the 2007 Australian Open. For sure. Um those, and those, but those were Herculean efforts, and so to think that she, especially as she gets older and older, I mean, the 20s, 2007 Australian Open was 11 years ago. Like she's a much older player, an older athlete now, and the comebacks have to be slower for someone her age, um, who's also now got a kid to deal with. Um, and just, I, I, I mean, think, and, and just... I think just just give her just give her time, and I, I maybe give herself time too. I don't know. I, like I said, I just was surprised given how perfectionist Serena is that she is scheduling this far when from every assessment I've seen from people who watch that match, she just doesn't look and she could surprise us all and win Miami or something. But I just, I, I don't think she's close. I really don't. And I, and I have to be blunt about assessing her like any other player. I, I don't think that she, even no, though she has had this yeah. great, a great career and this great, and this tough struggle, you know, she's still putting her name in these, in these matches and these draws or she plans to anyway. 
and you have to sort of size her up fairly. And right now, I would just be very sort of down on her chances. Minus, and again, never count her out totally, but I think she's got a much further to go on this mountain than I expected. Having I, I didn't watch, I only watched highlights of the Abu Dhabi match, um, but they looked better than what I saw. Yeah, in, no, if you watch the match, then Asheville. nothing but, that but, happened but I also in Asheville know that, that would have been Panko surprising. Was playing very halfway in that match. She was, so, she was. But yeah. that's my point: is that she, Ostapenko, was playing halfway, and Serena barely took it to three sets. Which again, it's an exhibition. They probably agreed to play three sets, so it's very likely that, you know, the scoreline was kind of predetermined in the first two sets anyway. But no, I mean, I think, I just think that like, I worry a little bit because I remember seeing this um, conversation, like even around the Grand Slam or when she was trying to go for the Grand Slam or, you know, the Australian Open in 2017, where people, even her most ardent fans who are, you know, straight up like Yas Queen, like can do no wrong, like Serena's Beyonce, like all these, you know, that you and I have talked about before, Mm -hmm. that even, you know, those fans, I fear a little bit that they're not giving her credit for what she's done because to do what she had done, the last even three or four years was monumental. Yeah, oldest number one ever women's. Side. You 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 cannot take that for granted. Like unbelievable, unbelievable accomplishment of what she did. But because she kind of has this aura of like, yeah, being a superhero, um, everybody's like, Oh yeah, well that's what just was just what Serena does. And I feel like a little but that's not true. Like it's not she is a once in a lifetime talent. But that doesn't mean that she's not human. And like what she's trying to come back from now is bigger than anything she's come back from before. Mm -hmm. I agree. And in that way, I feel like everyone needs to like kind of take a step back and recognize that therefore when she does what we all think that she might do, which is win another slam or another two slams or another three slams, it is going to be a fucking moment. Like that will be one of the greatest like sporting accomplishments of anyone ever Mm -hmm. but if you think that it's a foregone conclusion then it's not one of the greatest sporting feats ever you know what i mean like it doesn't work both ways like i think that the, the 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 mountain that she has to climb is incredibly steep if anyone can do it it's serena that doesn't change the fact that it's incredibly steep and right. what we are asking her to do and what we are expecting her to do or wanting her to do is a superhuman task. So, you know, like I personally kind of think that she shouldn't come back until Wimbledon mm. because that would at least give her plenty of time, more time on the practice court, more time to get, you know, ready and to get confident because I think that she does need the confidence. It's also a tournament that she obviously she knows she plays well at. It's also a tournament where the rallies will not be long. It's a tournament that acceler- that um, you know um, rewards her serve in a way that creates a gap between her and the rest of the field. Yeah. But coming back into Indian Wells, coming back even to Miami, which I know Indian she's Wells won. Indian Wells is a grind as a tournament. It's a terrible tournament, and it's not. I mean, it's not even like the last couple of years that she's played. It's been particularly successful. Or not last two, last one. She she's played it twice. She made a semi. Yeah, two. She pulled out in a semi and made a final. Yeah. Lost to Vika. Oh, that's right. The Vika match. Okay, fair. Mm-hmm. It's been better than I than I remember it being. 
but yeah, I don't know. I I just feel like like maybe Wimbledon is the better grass. Yeah, and, and maybe play you know Eastbourne, Eastbourne or Wimbledon, Mallorca or, or Birmingham, yeah, yeah, or something, yeah. Before something that. like that. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, that makes that makes some sense to me. I, I yeah, I just I just think that I I worry. Or I don't I don't worry. I'm not losing sleep over this, but like I think that it's gonna be tough for people to be realistic about Serena. It always is, and I think even more now in this real superhero Beyonceification cover of Vogue every other month apparently sort of period with Serena we're in you know stepping back and realizing that she is human is almost sort of more imperative than ever as she is more human arguably than yeah than she's ever been yeah that's true older than obviously everyone's older than they've ever been but she's in uncharted waters for a player having a kid this late in their career or this late in their age at 36 and coming back and she is 36 right and um and and wanting to come back yeah I, I i think that i just don't want her to rush it. i don't want fans to be impatient or to think that and i, I don't know i i just would be very pessimistic if she does go ahead and play indian wells and i she's still entered but she was entered when she was three months pregnant and she was in that draw so i don't read much into that um if i uh yeah i, I would just agree with you take it slow be patient come back in you know uh it's like a first week grass tournament that you could play, like Sir Togenbosch. Togenbosch, baby. Something like I've been that. told something it's to, amazing. <laughs> something <laughs> like that to sort of ease back in and give herself chances. And maybe she doesn't want to, you know, skip the French Open if she feels like she really wants to get to 24 and 25 and doesn't have the luxury. I think she yeah, does. But, but I don't, is, I don't think you'd want to come back on clay. I, I don't know. It's but just, but yeah. the thing is about Serena, and I wrote this in my piece after Abu Dhabi, I just don't think that a champion of her caliber um, wants to just come back and play. She She's not, she's not, she's not going to Leighton Hewitt out there. No, no she doesn't want to come back and lose in fourth rounds, third rounds, second rounds, quarterfinals, semifinals. That's not the point of the comeback. The point of the comeback is to win the titles. So to that end, I just don't think that she plays a French open. I, I just don't think she plays a clay season. I think that, again, if, if you want to look at a tournament or the tournaments where you might, would have the best chances of actually winning, it would be Wimbledon. It would be the U.S. Open, mm-hmm. right? Like, especially the U.S. Open when everybody else is tired. But maybe if you, you know, schedule your training the right way, like you come in as being not just the GOAT, but like, you know, way better rested than everybody else. Fresh GOAT. Yeah. yeah you know, like, and, Sloan, like Sloan did in 2017. Yeah. A little bit. Yeah, and Madison to that, you know, to that end. Yeah. I mean, you know, they didn't have a lot of uh, matches under the belt. So that's that's kind of, to me, where... Because I want that for her. Like, I want her to over... I, I want her to have the all-time record so badly. I really, really do. I just don't... I just don't see that she just wants to, like, come to a tournament knowing that she's not, like in a place to win it. I just, I just yeah. don't think that that's Serena. And that's what was so weird to me with the, with the Asheville thing. And I know it was a dead rubber and I know she's playing with Venus and I know maybe she had to get some Olympic credits if she was sticking ahead to Tokyo qualification for why she would put herself in that tie. Um, but I don't know. I was just, I was just surprised to see her look so off her best because I don't usually see Serena, Serena being willing to do that since like the 2006 Australian open. If you remember that tournament when she was really out of sorts and lost to Hantikova in the third round and played really tough against Lina. Maybe the first time I ever saw Lina 
first round of that tournament. Yeah, it, it was it was an odd odd moment, and hopefully next time we see her on court, she's uh, more ready to go. I hope. I mean, not that there's any shame in her being not ready to go, but it was just it was sort of a weird thing to have to calculate because I'm used to seeing Serena uh, in more sort of peak form than that. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm comparing it to like an Andy Murray, for example. Like, I genuinely believe. Andy Murray, when he says he just misses competing and he mm-hmm. just wants to be out there, even if it's losing in the first round, second round, third round, fourth round, I just don't think that's Serena. I think she's mm-hmm. there to win the whole thing or she's not there at all. Yeah. So, yeah. No, that's, that's, that's fair. That's fair. Um, I don't know how exactly to transition from Serena. Well, I guess Serena was a little bit involved in the Darko story. But um, <laughs> on my next next item on my agenda, we we talked about this a lot in Australia, Courtney. I was we did a test that I was once I sort of got figured out at all what was going on in the Darko Grand Sharoff story that I was pretty quickly very obsessed with it. Um, and it came out, and I'm just curious what you what I think you had some raised some you raised you know you were there ready with your sort of comments on it on Twitter, which I thought were right on the nose about what the Darko story said about, and for those of you, I'll put a link to it in the, in the, I assume most people who listen have probably read it by now, but the story about Darko Grancharov, who was a social media sensation and a bit of a traditional media sensation in last fall and January during the Australian Open uh, for being this woke tennis player uh, who was standing up for gay rights and women's tennis and all these sorts of things that people have craved for men's tennis. And then it turns out he's really not like a tennis player at all by any normal definition. Um, but I think the story, I think the story, aside from just being sort of crazy, has some definite sort of lessons or commentaries, which I think if you want to sort of restate those from what you did on Twitter, Courtney, yeah. that sort of apply to this the state of the tour and the state of the population of tennis and probably men's tennis a little bit more in particular for what fans uh, feel about it right now. Yeah, no, I mean, obviously, you know, we talked about it uh, extensively during the Australian Open about the ca- the curious case of Darko Grin- Grincharov. I, you know, I'm very aware of what happens on tennis Twitter. I'm very aware of, you know, the fact that this kid was getting a ton of traction and, and tweeting all these great things and things that, that I'd certainly think and that I would align myself with. But there was never a moment that I retweeted him. I never favorited a tweet that he ever tweeted. Um, I never in any way really acknowledged that he was happening. And and this kind of came out before. And, and Ben and I ended up talking about it at the Australian Open because I this was completely in my own world. Like I just was – it wasn't like we had talked about it. It was like, oh, this guy's sketchy. But what I said to Ben in Melbourne was like – Sorry, but like the biggest red flag to me was that there's no way that this person exists in tennis. Yeah. There's just no way. I mean, that was the biggest red flag to me. There was just no way knowing the sport, the way that I know it, and particularly the the, the men's side of things, that this woke dude who is so adamantly and strenuously, at least seeming at the time, um, in terms of his his love for the Williamses and his worship of them, the um, you know the stance against Margaret Corden against like homophobia, like all of these sorts of things, I was like, I don't know, like I just don't think that that exists. And not just those stances, but like stridently and like 
at such a high volume. Exactly. Too. That's the thing. It it's like, like being a, a vocal. Quiet note of support. It was right. being really aggressive and really like trashing Tennis Sangren and really, you know, just like, you know, talking the way that tennis tweeters and tennis fans and tennis like message boards talk about the sport, which is such a different lexicon than players do. Exactly. I mean, I, I think that there are, I, I to clarify, I do think that there are players who believe all of these things. I just never thought that there would be a player, even down at the level that he was, that would openly vocalize them. Mm -hmm. Like, I, you know, like we celebrate an Andy Murray and Andy Murray never even came close publicly of being as strident right. as Darko Grincharov, you know? So I was like very like kind of skeptical, but like quietly so. As was I. I was quietly skeptical. Yeah. And then I think time. that our skepticism kind of wonder twins activated drunkenly while watching Girls Trip <laughs> like in Melbourne, where it was just like, hold on, what is going on here? And like, we just kind of both like started talking about it. And to me, again, like, I think that the story is not about him. Like, I, I just, you know, he clearly has some issues that he needs to deal with and and i feel bad for him that he felt like he needed to go this route um in order to get attention and in order to get um whatever he was he was searching for in terms of validation and things like that so th this isn't about him i think that the broader issue is what i was hit was hitting on before which is that like tennis fans wanted to believe what they wanted to believe they wanted to believe in this mythical unicorn yeah. Because that person does not exist, that there isn't anybody in tennis, professional tennis, that at least the people that I follow, which are like tennis fans who are from marginalized groups, um, that they feel like is standing up for them. That, that you know, consistently and, and loudly and vocally and stridently. Mm -hmm. And that is what is the sad story about the Darko Grincharov thing is that like all you had to do was Google this guy's ITF profile. Right. And you would have realized he was fake or at least not a thing. Right. No, I mean like he had, and to be not even trying to be mean, he had the worst possible ITF profile you could have besides not having one. Arguably it was worse than not having one. <laughs> yeah. No, he played it was. just one junior qualities match. At a grade five juniors, which is the lowest level of juniors, won qualities match and got double bageled by a guy who never won in the other ITF matches. Like, yeah, it could not get. Yeah. And, and, but and it was it was strange also that people because of his story being so yeah needed or resonant or whatever urgent this sort of character was that people were willing to overlook all that. And, and people, I think I said in some tweet to somebody like it was like there was this job opening for this position of woke male tennis player for so long, this urgent need for it, that once somebody applied, they like, didn't bother calling any of his references. But it was, yeah, but it was, yeah, exactly. No, yeah, nobody checked the receipts. Nobody checked the references. Nobody checked to make sure that this was a thing. And I, I remember telling you, like, when we were <laughs> that fateful night in Melbourne, like, like, why are people going gaga over this guy and, like, Liam Brody gets no traction? Yeah, Liam Brody. I was going to make sure to give a shout out to Liam Brody, who is like the closest thing to like a real life. He really again, is. He's, he's like, if you, his terms of being, you know, socially progressive and a spoken supporter of women's tennis, his sister plays women's tennis, obviously, Naomi Brody. And, you know, he does not quite as on the nose and not quite as, you know, as like one user said about Darko, like, like tennis Twitter invented in a factory. <laughs> but there, he is somebody out there and there's other players, 
you know, too, like female side. It was nice to see Laura Robson get some recognition. Yep. Um, for what she did in 2012 during the Margaret Court Arena first sort of, at least in my career, first controversy over her stances that Laura wore her scrunchie and it was subtle but unmistakable. And uh, and, to, and kid who even more importantly, like took took on the questions straight up, like after her yeah. press conference, like mm-hmm. she didn't back down. It was a subtle gesture on court, but off court, like she was quite strong about what she said. Yeah, no, she was. It was an unwavering gesture, but not still not the same, you know, really right, strident, sure. aggressive language that Darko used. And, maybe, and that's, again, why it was just seemed just did not add up to me before and sort of put me on the on the trail of being like something is not right here um and yeah i i think that yeah so liam brody if you if you want a sort of woke tennis bay to follow follow liam is is, is worth worth your time and effort on that and he actually plays matches so you can follow his results and he's great liam brody's great at your nearest challenger no but but it's an interesting thing you know because because i think that it is a lesson that i'm not entirely sure you know tennis twitter really absorbed after the after your story because obviously it was sensational and people were kind of cracking jokes and it was wild it was was wild it was super out there i mean obviously like kind of living alongside you as you discovered so many of those things was truly a joy when we watched him play (laughs) you're every every time when the people there's i only published on the story like a small clip of him playing but there's a longer i have the whole macedonian tv show he was on and like the people's reactions when they saw him playing <laughs> tennis were always I always watched them but not the screen. <laughs> yes. Uh 100%. But but I think that the the biggest thing and I think that the thing that we do have to take away not just like, you know, tennis I, I don't mean to chastise tennis Twitter because it's this applies to me, it applies to you, all of us that are a part of this tennis world. Is that I've always found it so fascinating that this tennis community, at least the one that I'm a part of, um, is so cynical and is so easy to buy into conspiracy theories or, mm. um, you know, think that, that there's some ulterior motive to things. And yet, when this thing existed and was a thing that you just wanted to exist, you, everyone completely checked their cynicism at the door. It, it's why it, it's why it was a story that fit into this sort of larger fake news narrative. Is that people are because, not yeah. critical of what they want of what to they believe want is to true. Be true, exactly. Right, exactly. And yeah. if it's something that, that goes against your pre-existing notions or pre-existing narratives, you'll reject it out of hand, even if it might be true or valid or have some truth or valid to it, validity to it. Um, but it's and I think that lines yeah. up with what you want. Yeah, and, I, and one of the things actually I was most impressed with in the tennis reaction to it is how many people were willing to say on Twitter that they, like, got got. Yeah, just, I was surprised that by that, me. too. I was people, totally so surprised many, by that. So many people were willing to say, wow, this guy totally tricked me, and either I should have known better or something like that. I was I was surprised by – first of all, I was surprised at how many people he actually tricked because I didn't really know just from doing the story. I could tell people who tweeted about him and had the more sort of interesting tweets mentioned by name and stuff that I could filter through for searching through the story. Um, but, yeah, I was surprised at how many people – were willing to say that and and i don't know if they learned lessons from it or not and i think it's not we'll get to this next but it's not coincidental that the harrison young thing happened the same night my story came out um, was it the same night it was the same night Jeez. those are both on that monday night um which are obviously very different things but had some similarities in terms of like 
you know, tennis debates and tennis polarizing moments. Um, yeah, it was, uh, it was an interesting, Darko was a very interesting case study, I think. Yeah, no, sure. I mean, I think that, uh, honestly, my message would be just because it's a thing that you don't want to believe is true, don't reject it just because you don't mm-hmm. want it to believe is true and vice versa. Just because it's a thing that you want to believe is true, don't just accept it as truth. That's just the fact. And yeah, that segues very easily into the thing that you want to discuss now. Yeah, I mean, I don't need to discuss it too much. I just want to sort of say just that about it, about the Donald Young, uh, Ryan Harrison incident, brouhaha, kerfuffle, whatever you want to call it, in uh, Long Island at the tournament there, which got off with a fairly, at least from a distance, I don't know how it was in person, but it seemed like a fairly rocky start to this event. The stands were, it's a huge stadium, but the stands were super empty. And the only thing the tournament got sort of noticed for outside of Kevin Anderson winning the title, which is good for Kevin and doing well in New York and back in top 10, all that good stuff for Kevin, is this awful incident of Ryan Harrison and Donald Young talking and getting in a verbal altercation a few times during the match. And then afterwards, first Donald Young's girlfriend, and then Donald Young himself on Twitter tweeting that Ryan had said something racist towards him or disrespected him in some way, in some racial way. And uh, Harrison vehemently denying that repeatedly over and over again. And there being almost no on-court audio of it at all, which was amazing. This happens in tennis where there's microphones everywhere. And a microphone in Montreal can pick up something Nick Kyrgios mutters like in the middle of no man's land between points. But this loud shouting match that happened right at the chair, Empire's chair, didn't get picked up at all. It was a strange thing. And I think everybody's reactions to it at least tennis Twitter fans' reactions to it sort of aligned all with what you'd expect, what they wanted, what sort of fit their worldview, I guess. And I don't, I still don't know what happened. I have no reason. I don't know. It, it, it's a story that I tried to stay away from as much as possible on Twitter because I just didn't know. And neither outcome was a good outcome in terms of if he did say it, that's bad. If he didn't say it and Donald said he did say it, that's also bad. I don't know. It was just it was just a weird, unpleasant thing. We don't need to talk about it much more than that, but I felt like it was worth mentioning, at least on the show, because it was uh, a big incident in tennis uh, in February. Yeah, but no, I, I mean, no, I, I don't I don't really outside of, you know, you you you, you talk to Donald or sorry to I Ryan. To Ryan. Donald um, would not talk. Yeah, Donald would not talk. Uh, Wertheim talked to Ryan. Donald refused to talk to him as well. So it it's a, it puts everybody in a bit of a difficult situation, right? Because because on one side you have somebody who's been accused of a thing, who's taken every opportunity that he's been given to 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 refute it, and there's no evidence that he said or said anything close to what was insinuated that he said. I guess. And I'll um, say that Ryan has refuted it, I think, credibly, and that his story has stayed incredibly consistent. Ryan gave a admittedly, I will say, fairly hilarious rundown of what they actually did say to each other or his version of what they said to each other on court. <laughs> it was a lot of calling each other bitches and making fun of Donald's height and talking about wanting to fight outside. And then Ryan was upset that Donald might actually fight him outside and went and got security. I mean, there was the this, security like, thing still cracks me up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like Ryan was like, anytime, anytime I'll fight you. And then when he thought he might actually have to fight, he was like, please get security. I'm afraid this might actually happen or not. Afraid. I mean, yeah, didn't want to actually happen the fighting outside um, and his, his version of accounts matched up completely with what the ball kid who was there said in terms of mentioning specific things in an interview that he did with David Waldstein, who was there covering the tournament for the times. 
I, I don't know. It, it was just, uh, and then Donald, yeah, Donald would not give any specifics. He never was any more specific on what his claim was. And it just, it just, yeah, it was a sucky incident. And those guys, I did not know how much past bad blood there was between them, but there clearly was a fair amount. Um, they don't like each other yeah. too much is what no, my guess is based off of the things that I've heard from you. Yeah, no, not at all. They, they had some, they had some history for sure. And there's two guys who are always sort of this and kind of, I guess I've just, they haven't played too many matches against each other on big stages that I've just wasn't aware that it was a thing. And, and the other thing about the story is that Ryan has become a common denominator in on court, you know, nonsense in the last few years. Ryan starts a lot of, I, I mentioned him when I was talking about Wozniacki earlier. Like, Ryan is sort of the gold standard in shit starting on court Which, right now. okay, I just have to say this. That ESPN article... Oh, I don't know if I saw that one. ...written by Peter Bodo. Okay, I don't think I saw this. Which was, which was last week, celebrating the fact that Ryan Harrison has put behind him his hot-headedness. Oh, please. And that is why he is now succeeding in his career was one of the most disingenuous things I've read in a very long time. Honestly. Having not read it, I will agree with you. Because he is constantly, as John Wertheim mentioned on Twitter, he may have not said what he is accused of being uh, of saying in this instance, right. but the fact remains that guy is constantly in the mix yeah. of controversial situations. And when there is smoke... You cannot blame people for thinking that there is fire. And if you have to play a tennis match, and in order to win that tennis match, you have to truly believe that the person across the net from you is an utter fucking asshole, something is wrong with you from a that's, competitive perspective. That's that's fair. No, I mean, like, it's just Ryan... And he has cussed there. out... Left and right on changeovers, maybe not directly to the opponent, but he has absolutely cussed out players under his breath. Oh, like the Hanfman thing. Hanfman, yes. Yeah. I mean, that's the only one that we know for sure, right? Because even the duty Sela thing with the crowd, like, you, it's hard to hear yeah, whether the, or not he said it or not. Thing. Yeah, yeah. And also, and I also think it's unfair, again, to like people who are saying, oh, he said something. I could, I listened to that Hanfman clip like 20 times and could not make out anything the specific quote that's being attributed to it, I just could not come up with on that audio. Um, that's fair. So I don't know what but, he, uh, I don't I, know what he's saying. And, and but, even go, but even goes back to Kalkanakis in twenty yeah whatever year that was when after the Harris after the Curious thing and that was very much Ryan trying to be sort of a sheriff out there. And I think, like I said with Wozniacki, which I really meant more for Ryan, is he goes out there trying to enforce unwritten rules, and he did to Alex Dimonar in Brisbane. Yep, like he got mad at he started he he complained to the chair empire about Demonor like moving during his service motion or between serves like late in that second set tie break and that and that really was like a turning point in the match that rattled Demonor's concentration he's a gamer sorry he's a, yeah he he's is. A, he he's... will absolutely engage in gamesmanship if yeah. it helps him get a, a leg up um because at the end of the day Ryan Harrison considers himself the ultimate competitor and an ultimate competitor, so long as you are operating within the, the lines of the law, which I think Harrison does believe that he has done, he'll do, he'll do, he'll do what he needs to do. Yeah. And so it's like that weird combination of, of, of factors where it's not binary. And I think that sometimes with, you know, not sometimes, but all the times with social media, everything is binary. Somebody is evil, somebody is good. 
somebody said a shitty thing they're a terrible person forever somebody is is an angel um even if they're non-existent like you know what i mean like so with and him those, they're, but they're, also all those priors we listed doesn't mean he did this thing with all young that's my that, yeah exactly now the fact that the american press finds it i mean when i read the bodo article the immediately and i thought of you but immediately i thought of like the bravo interview that he had to do at the Olympics, London Olympics. Oh God, that was horrible. And the ability of like people to come, like to rally to this guy's defense when they hang out to dry, right? The curioses, the um, you know, the the controversial figures who really haven't done anything at all, actually. I wouldn't say Kyrgios has done nothing. No, I, I wouldn't say – you know my point My point about Kyrgios. I understand your larger point, yes. Yeah, which is that, like, yes, he did a shitty thing on that court in Toronto that one day. Outside of that, I don't think that he's done anything shitty. I think he's been petulant and I think he's been immature. But the only shitty thing that I think Nick has done was that. Okay. Personally. Um, but the, the lengths that people go to, like, rescue this guy, it's Unbelievable. Unbelievable unbelievable I, I think that i think that's fair yeah and, and all those things are really true and yet at the same time like the, it was people on right after the darkest story came out were so ready to believe this thing which was just uncorroborated in new york and again i don't know if he said it or not i have no evidence that he said it at this point it doesn't i think hopefully that matters behind them hopefully they don't play each other for a long time these two and we can just sort of pretend not pretend didn't happen but just sort of move on from it but yeah i i, I agree that people give ryan a lot more slack and ryan is a ryan's an interesting character on tour we've talked about i remember in back in 2012 in season one of ncr when ryan was like an upcoming thing like ryan got talked about a lot on this show because ryan's like an incredibly he provokes reactions in people like ryan's just there's a lot there to to process and um and good and bad i mean he's he's in some ways very um uh sort like very engaging and can be very personable or sort of have a he's charismatic charismatic he's, he's a charismatic guy right and he does he's like very um engaged in one-on-one interviews and attentive and pretty well spoken and thoughtful and articulate and all those sorts of things but also he has this sort of streak in him of being incredibly savage and petty and you know whatever else you want to say about him and just even the way he, and that's even and back to the New York incident, like just the what his tone is the most like aggressive pointed tone of anybody's that which is which is what for. cracks me up because he has that tone and then calls for security. <laughs> yeah, like that is the weakest sauce ever. If you're gonna go at somebody, go at them. But if you're scared that, that person's gonna punch you in the face, then maybe don't go at them. That's that's fair. That's the reality of things. That's the reality of real life. You don't actually have the right to say whatever you want to say without potential repercussion. And I feel like he operates in a world where he thinks that there there should never be repercussion for what he does. Good or bad. That's that. And it's it's obnoxious. Sorry. (laughs) It's obnoxious. It is because he he gets cut slack that no one else gets cut. And why? Because he gives a firm handshake because he says, yes, sir. No, ma'am. Is that why? I don't know. I don't get it. I never got it when I was a, when I covered the ATP when I was with SI. I don't get it now, obviously, because I don't have to pay attention to it anymore. But it is fascinating to watch from afar. 
that this kid gets cut an incredible amount of slack. Yeah. And hopefully, and hopefully at least something about the common denominator stuff, which is undeniable gets through to him and he tones it down. It won't. (laughs) It won't. It won't. Yeah. No. And at the same time, most of the, like, I can't, obviously the the young accusations crossed a, a line, but a lot of times, you know, people want, you know, I, I'm admittedly, you know, someone who enjoys tennis matches to get, you know, dramatical or snipey or whatever. And Ryan enjoys that too. Ryan, when Ryan was on the podcast uh, back in the Charlottesville episode uh, for the, um, not that Charlottesville, the Charlottesville Challenger, um, and was saying, talking about how he enjoys the sort of feistiness of, of battle as part of what gets him up. And he's somebody which is rare in this generation, in this sort of Federer generation, that there's somebody who's like willing to be, I don't think he realizes he is, but he is a heel on court. Um, and that's just, a, I think that's much, that probably was much more common in sort of a Jimmy Connors type era of tennis. And I think Ryan is the current version of that without Jimmy's grandson titles, obviously, just with his sort of um, button pushing desires. So, there's anyway. there's there's one on every side of the American line on that one, but yeah, <laughs> can't imagine who you possibly would be talking about there. Um... Jamie Hampton. <laughs> Sorry, Jam, didn't want to out you. Oh, classic Jamie. All right. Um, other things. Um, we got a question or asking us to talk about. Let me see if I can pull up the exact wording of this. We'll keep this part quick. Oh, from uh, Reg asking us to talk about the rise in popularity of the Acapulco tournament, which has an incredibly strong field. I was actually debating going down to Acapulco for the coverage tournament for the first time this year and did not, um, partially because of the Bouchard trial, which was happening at the same time, uh, which ended before Acapulco started, as it turned out, but was no way of knowing that going in. Um, yeah, Acapulco has a great field. Um, I certainly... It has a much stronger field than Dubai, which is a total script flip, and it made sense for that tournament to switch to hard courts. I do. I got a couple messages about this, private messages about this, about people asking why Nadal is playing Acapulco um, when he has complained so much about the stress of the schedule and about playing on hard courts, and why he's adding <clears throat> an additional hard court tournament that's unnecessary. Just to be clear, I, I was not the one that DM'd him. No, <laughs> you could have been. I could have. But no, but but I, I'm just going to sort of, as I said in court, just sort of enter that into evidence that that is a thing that happened that Rafael Nadal is playing this tournament, um, which I think should undermine his complaints. And I'll just leave it at that. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's a good tournament. And Sam Querrey is defending champion. And <laughs> Sorry. Funny. Sam, Sam Querrey is like number 11 on tour now. He's at his career high. He's doing really well. Um, cool. He's not had a great 2018 actually at all, but... He uh, could be American number one. Sock is slipping or didn't defend his Delray title. And Sock is made semis at Indian Wells. So Sam could get it after that. For those of you keeping up to date on your Sock versus Query races, which I'm sure is almost all of you. Yeah, and that's about it for rundown of the time that wasn't tennis. And any other any other loose threads we didn't get to? This is pretty exhaustive. Yeah. By our no, I thought, I, I thought so. I mean, in terms of Acapulco versus Dubai... Um, and kind of how things skew. That's just, I think that it, it matters a lot that Dubai was for so long buoyed by Novak. And Roger. And Roger. And Roger played Rotterdam instead um, and got the number one and et cetera. So I think that the, 
the panic about Dubai is a little bit short-sighted. I mean, I'd be curious to see what happens next year, for example. Um, the, the travel from Acapulco to Indian Wells as opposed to Dubai to Indian Wells absolutely does matter. I mean, it makes it, sense. Yeah. And I also just think that, crudely, it seems like Acapulco must have gotten a massive cash infusion. Because they're just getting players who you have to pay for to get. Yeah, yeah, with with appearance fees and things like that, absolutely. Yeah, it, it's an interesting one. It's weird. Like if if I was a player, to be honest, I would rather spend that week in Dubai than Acapulco. Why? Um, because I I do think the 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 venue and the way that you're kind of treated and. Uh, all that is is superior probably in Dubai. I say that as as someone who's never been to Acapulco, so fair enough. But I think that they're they're treated very well in Dubai. I think that the conditions are better in Dubai to prepare for Indian Wells than the humidity of Acapulco, which is not something that you're going to see in Indian Wells. Um, I don't know. I mean. I, I, and, I, and I will say this as 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 not like a a judgment, but just based off of like historical evidence of the last three years, you're less likely to get sick in Dubai than you are in Acapulco. That does happen there. That's true. Um. So yeah. Um. Last year, didn't Acapulco have like some riot or something like outside the the doors of the 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 resort? There was something that happened. That I don't remember. I mean, Mexico certainly has. Right. It's just, it's just like sure. more more. But, there were more yeah. security issues, I think, than in 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 Acapulco than there were in Dubai. And the thing is, is like everybody like complains about oh, Acapulco's closer. But honestly, like you have a week. Like if you won the title in Dubai, and you go and 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 chances are if you've won Dubai, Dubai, you're probably a top. 32 seed in Indian Wells. Yeah. Which means that you are not going to play for another week in Indian Wells. So this whole idea right, yeah, of the like... men's seeds don't play until like Friday, Saturday. Exactly. So this whole idea Saturday, of like, Sunday oh, it's Sunday. so much closer. It's like, dude, you're not... You're going to get tons of time off. Especially if you're a European player. You know, you're making a shorter flight to Dubai in exchange for a longer flight. Yeah. Time. If you're uh, an American player, that's yeah, a good totally point. play Acapulco. Oh, yeah. No, but, no, no. Yeah. North, North America, South America. I totally get playing Acapulco. Um, but yeah, if you're European, I think that you should be playing Dubai for sure. Yeah. No, it's interesting. And it's interesting how the tournament switching to hardcourt has really helped its uh, cause. And it's an interesting thing, wondering if more tournaments uh, could do that sort of thing. And I think the one that I'm thinking of right now, I know Umag used to be hardcourt and switched back to being clay. Uh, but it used to be hardcourt to fit into the US Open sort of warm-ups better. And there's this new outdoor Moscow tournament uh this year for wta which yep. is an outdoor european the moscow is, river which, open which is a very rare breed the outdoor european hardcore tournament um so interesting to see how, how that happens and if the tour becomes more homogenous than before which i'm not saying it's a, a good thing but it's the thing that possibly could be trending a little bit on the margins there okay i think that's about it anything else uh, should we get to rants raves wrap up sure i think that's it great well thank you guys for listening to this episode of no challenges remaining which is like a monthly show now but i feel like it's quality over quantity i hope if you want to follow along when you're not listening you can do so by liking us on facebook facebook.com slash ncr podcast follow us on twitter at ncr underscore tennis uh, send us emails with questions comments to no challenges remaining at gmail.com and subscribe to us on whatever your podcasting app of choice is and leave us reviews there whether it's itunes overcast stitcher 
all those good things we should be there for you um yeah that's that's about it Courtney do you have thoughts on things now that you're back home and hopefully your mind is settling you're catching up on culture and movies and all that sort of stuff what what's uh what's spoken to you what has spoken to me um and the olympics just happened the olympics did just happen that um both hockey gold medal games were amazing mm-hmm. um oh, poor germans i know three minutes man three minutes actually 55 seconds no yeah like they when they, when they, they were got 55 power, seconds they, away from the gold they medal. got a power play with two minutes and 17 seconds left I'm sorry, you should not lose that game at that Germany, point. what the heck, man? It's kind of a funny thing because before that game, I was telling my parents, I was like, there's nothing that could happen tonight that would be bad for Germany. But having the gold medal with 55 seconds left to go? It's not great. On a power play. On a pa- and you're on power play? Oh, that's exactly. brutal. Um, yeah, no, uh, my rants and raves. Well, I've been home for a week. I have been trying desperately to try and catch up. Uh, everybody talks about the Oscar race. My own Oscar race is just to see all the movies before Sunday. Mm-hmm. And so far, it's been great. Um, I think that Three Billboards, I don't understand why everybody's hating on it. Uh, outside of the fact that they just love Call Me By Your Name more or something. I don't know. But Three Billboards was amazing. Um, and it was awesome. Uh, Phantom Thread was great. I loved it. It was pta and the more i think about it i the more i love that movie um ladybird uh uh paul thomas anderson the director who i adore um ladybird was great oh yeah we haven't talked about ladybird what do you think of ladybird i, I loved it no no, no yeah. i loved it i loved it it was it was really really kind of perfect it's it's one of those movies where i was like oh look somebody made a movie for me so yeah everything about it i loved what else did i see that I adored. I'll say on three billboards, I liked it a lot too, but I found, I don't understand why Sam Rockwell is the one getting nominations and not Woody Harrelson. Cause I thought Woody was so much better than Rockwell. Yeah. But and, Woody had less screen time. Right. But I also just, I just, I, we talked he about was really good offline. though. I thought that Sam was just sort of his character arc was preposterous and that, but the, and the, and, and that, that it made sense to me to find out that I think Graham Broadbent is the guy who like wrote and directed it or whatever it is. Um, and is that right? Hold on. Let me see if I can find this guy's name, actually. Oh, no. Martin McDonough. Yeah, it was name. a McDonough movie. Yeah. Right. And that it just sort of it sort of was this like caricature of America that didn't read as authentic. Yeah, no, I read that. I read that review as well. I mean, that's probably I I, I wouldn't disagree with that. I, I, I don't think that actually Sam Rockwell's character has an arc. I think that the whole point of the movie is that like shit just happens. And people react to it. And I don't like I don't think that Sam Rockwell was redeemed at the end um, just because he did what he did. Like, you know what I mean? Like he -hmm. was still kind of like that toxic, terrible person. And I don't think that that movie ever goes out of its way to like prove that like, oh, he's enlightened now and he's no longer racist. I think that he was always racist and to the end. But I think that the movie does open up this question whether people and and obviously this is where people reject it as as a movie or as a script um, is that this idea of like terrible people can still do good or terrible people can still be like it's not binary. It's not yeah. he's a racist and therefore terrible. Like and I don't know. I'll probably get blasted for that. But I understand that. I understand you know that. what I mean? Like. I don't know. Like, I have family members who are racist. They don't do any shit about it. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's a thought. 
And so I think that at the end of the day with him, you know, once he kind of like turns that corner after the fire, like, I don't think his, his like ideas changed. By the way, there's a lot of spoilers for this movie, but I, um, I, I think that, oh, I also just want to add that Woody Harrelson was apparently nominated for best actor, supporting actor. Also oh, there you go. Realize. So my vote would be for him, <laughs> two of them, but yeah. Yeah, no, but, but, but three like billboards that. was great. The one movie that has been nominated that I didn't like all that much, although it's a perfectly fine movie, but I just don't, I just, whatever, uh, was I, Tanya. I just, I just really disliked it. Um, even though I think that it was a well executed, like, like Allison Janney's amazing if she wins, um, awards for it. I'm totally supportive of it. I thought Margot Robbie was great. Um, I don't get the hype, but she was good in it. Sebastian Stan was good in it. The script I thought was terrible. I think that the script was flawed on many, many different levels. And the thing that like I realized in talking to people about the movie over the course of the last few months is that there are so many people who love this movie who did not live that time. Mm. And maybe that's good. Maybe it's bad. Younger but people, like, yeah. yeah, younger people. So like. If you, it, 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 it's so revisionist and people will come back to me and say like, well, yeah, like everybody knows that it's revisionist and fake. And it's like from like Tanya's perspective, I was like, do they? Because I'm not convinced that that is true because like watching the movie, there's never really a wink to the camera. That's, that's true. They, they 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 don't really establish her maybe as directly as they could as being an unreliable narrator. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Precisely right. Yeah. It's all presented as like, oh, woe is me. I was abused by my mom and my husband. Everything was terrible. I was given nothing. And then weirdly at the end, it pivots to like, and it's your freaking fault. You viewer. And I'm mm. like, what? Like, I just sat here for two hours watching you get the shit kicked out of you by Allison Janney and Sebastian Stan, and you're going to blame me? Baloney. And then on top of that, like, that's just not how it worked. And, like, this whole lionization of her and, like, you know, standing ovations because she comes to, like, the Golden Globes and Allison Janney. Uh, yeah. And Allison Janney being like, this woman was completely screwed. I'm like, no. She was not. She is not an innocent. She's just not. And that's what pisses me off about that movie is that it's just going to like perpetuate this idea that this woman was like, you know, treated unfairly. And I just don't believe that at all. I think she was treated incredibly fairly to what she did or didn't do, as it were. Mm. So, yeah, I, Tanya was the most like annoying one. But anyways, you knew you're, you knew you weren't going to let that going in, though. I remember talking to you about it before you saw it. Yeah, no, I did. Yeah. I did. But like like I said, like I appreciated the performances cuz I thought that they were really really good. But um yeah, I think that, that script was really really crap and I think the direction was crap because you could have probably directed that film with that script in a very different way to where you did acknowledge like, you know, that she's an unreliable narrator, that this is just her version of events and um and things like that, but I just never really, it never really hit me that that is what that movie was acknowledging, which was annoying. So, um, all that being said, the one movie that I feel like should be nominated for all the awards and win all the awards is Logan Lucky. And I would like really encourage everybody to see this movie. I love it so much. 
I it's literally the only movie I watch from now on. Um, I love everything about it, and uh, it's directed by Steven Soderbergh. It's uh, if people want like this myth that it goes with it. It's written by a person that no one has no one has ever heard of and no one has ever met. Mm, interesting. Uh, so Soderbergh didn't even meet this guy. No. So apparently, everybody's theory is that either it was written by Steven Soderbergh. Okay. But he uses a pen name, and so nobody, you know, whatever. Or, which is the theory that I buy into, that it was actually written by his wife, Jules Asner, who was like a entertainment reporter. That it was possibly written by his wife, and be and so Steven Soderbergh was retired, basically, um, for the last like few years, and so he came back and directed Logan Lucky, and so like she didn't want him. The the myth goes of like she wrote this thing, and she didn't want it to be like, oh, Steven Soderbergh directs his wife's movie, like this is so bullshit, you know, um, and so they they credited it to a complete uh, pseudonym. Like no one's ever talked to this person. She's never given interviews. Yep, Rebecca Blunt. No one's ever talked to them. Like whatever. So yeah, but it's it's a great script. Um, Adam Driver's amazing in it. Channing Tatum's awesome in it. Uh, Riley Keough, Daniel Craig steals a lot of the show. I find Daniel Craig like the weird like off note in this movie. I will say. Did you watch it? Yeah, 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 you saw it. I, th- I thought I thought Daniel Craig was like distractingly. He was casting. so weird, so weird. Like he played yeah. like this weirdly fay, like but uber straight, arguably like southern person who like didn't have like the complete correct southern accent. It was like very weird. <laughs> it was odd, but anyways, I love that movie. It's great. And then Hillary Swank comes in at the end out of nowhere. Yeah, the Hillary Swank stuff was not great because I was just like, what? But Adam Driver to me like sells the whole mo- the whole movie, like in terms of like his whole like did you just say cauliflower to me like everything about him is like so amusing, and I think Channing Tatum's great in it. I think Riley Keough is great in it. So I, I would absolutely be for Adam Driver getting the Oscar over Sam Rockwell. <laughs> yes, category. I would too. I'm just saying. <laughs> um, all right, so that's that's a good slate of stuff. Yeah, I, I liked Logan Lucky. I think I think it wasn't going to be an Oscar type movie. It's sort of more like no, a, it was not. O- Ocean's Eleven. It's a lotion, kind of, it, Yeah, it's yeah. Redneck Ocean's Eleven is what yeah. like everybody calls it, but it's great. I love it. It's a caper movie. Okay, so my rants, raves quickly. Um, I'll start with rave. I saw this play um, that was in New York over the uh, last couple of weeks, and it's actually ending. On, today i guess so it's I, this is part of what like i find frustrating about being going to the theater which i've done a few more times in the past few months is that like Ooh. it's all sort of uh very <laughs> it's ephemeral is probably too strong a word for it but just sort of it's like temporary and it's hard to if it's if it's just a play that's running for a month in new york it's like a hard thing to recommend um because it's most things i feel like we recommend you can anyone in the world listening can go see but it's a play called balls which is about the battle of sexes and it's, it was a very, very different interpretation of it and framing of it than the movie. And I thought it was a really interesting alternate version of events and had was not something that, unlike the movie that Billie Jean King was directly involved in, although she was there watching it with her partner, Alana Kloss, on the night I was there. And so it was pretty, like, surreal sitting, like, two rows in front of Billie and hearing her, like, laugh at different moments. She's a very distinctive laugh of, like, of the play and different jokes and had a very unflinching view of her personal life probably more than the uh more than the uh movie does it gets into more of what happened with the breakup with marilyn after the movie was all about the sort of rosier parts of their relationship 
Um, so yeah, it was it was really cool. That was very ambitious um, choreography. They like mapped out every single point that was played in the um, Battle of Sexes match and pretty much recreated them shot by shot and had sort of sh- shadow swinging between the actors playing Billy and Bobby. Um, so it's all hard to That's describe. That's a lot. It was, it, it was a lot. It was like, I was sort of like, why are you doing this? This seems so hard. And I'm not quite sure what the payoff is all the time, but it was, it was impressive. Um, so that was, that's, that's the rave for that. And sorry that no one will get to see it. Hopefully maybe they revive it somewhere, but it was probably not because it was such a unique high intensity production. Um, so that was good. My rants, I got so mad during the Olympics and I've never, I haven't liked them since I was a kid watching cool runnings. But I got so mad during the Olympics at the sliding sports, which I just this think was clear. Yes, are such wastes of time and money, and like needless like death risking for the stupidest payoff. Of like they, I watched like some. I watched. I think I'm not watching both days for some reason, just because I hate myself. Of like the women's skeleton uh, races, and like it's not that like it's like dangerous that they're like flying down a mountain head first, and that should be exciting. But it's not really because the camera work just doesn't show how fast they're really going. And the times are just like the same. Like they're going down and there's like nothing dividing the best from the worst in this sport for like hundreds of a second. And all it proves to me is that gravity, when you put a woman or a man, effectively, on a sled and push them down a mountain, they're going to go down roughly the same amount of time on like a very narrow track. And maybe, yes, maybe someone will lean and bump into a wall and it will be, oh, so bad they lost one one hundredth of a second there, but it's I and I don't know. They're just really not enjoyable to watch. The margins are meaningless. Um, gravity is pretty uniform, and uh, the courses are so incredibly expensive to make. There's such inherent danger in these sports, and they are very prohibitive. I think I heard I saw a stat that the Pyeongchang facility for sliding costs like a hundred and seven million dollars to build. What? And I don't know that it will be used again after these Olympics. Maybe it'll host like a luge, you know circuit race or something maybe it won't i don't know how much the loose circuit works in asia all of it just seems like such a huge huge waste of money to me and um i would like i think for like the sort of sustainability of the olympics i think it would be good for these sports to be removed and for people to find other olympic dreams because none of it makes any sense to me at all and like i said i liked cool runnings i put bob's in this category too um cool runnings there was some like weird slate had like a takedown of cool runnings during the olympics they kept oh slate posting and i was just like come on this is like a slate pitch that i don't need this this uh anti-cool running sense it was the movie for kids in the 1990s like it wasn't meant to like hold up to adults in 2017 or 2018 for intense scrutiny of its you know you know sociological you know statements or whatever its values are like i'm 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 still waiting for for slate to take down d2 and when it does that will be the moment that I cancel my Slate Plus subscription, <laughs> because how dare you? Um, no, but Cool Runnings and G two are like similarly veined kids. No, exactly, exactly. Yeah. That's what They're I mean. It's like yeah. it's not trying to be a thing, and people are ju- are are criticizing these things for not being the thing that they want them to be, which is like a really I think is like the most lazy type of criticism, like whether it's criticism of a book or a movie or a music or or what or even a you know sports of a player of a team like whatever like the idea that you are so pissed off that a thing is not the thing that you want it to be is so terrible of a mm-hmm. take you know what i mean like 
go to the thing that that exists and evaluate it accordingly and be like, you know, on its merits. In context, yeah. In context, like it, on its merits, what it's trying to do. Let me try and figure out here's what the 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 director or author or whatever is trying to accomplish. This is me evaluating whether or not he accomplished it. That is fair criticism complaining and bitching about like oh this thing is not the thing that i wanted it to be that is just like super super lazy so mm. yeah i mean i yeah 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 i think that's about right yeah that, that i guess that'll be my, my rant for today yeah go i, I enjoy cool runnings i i felt the rhythm and the rhyme and <laughs> i guess the and the whatever and i liked <laughs> i liked in the same way that sort of the it was more plausible than D2's villainization of Iceland. How dare but, you? Um, Iceland is evil. But, that you believe um, this Icelandic, you know, propaganda that they're harmless is yeah. a little disappointing, Ben. <laughs> but they, but the way that the, the um, Cool Runnings was so disdainful, of, I think it was the Swiss who were like the villains in Cool Runnings. I don't know. Just <laughs> any movie that's like whole stance of being really anti-Swiss, I just find funny because. That's fair. That's just funny. Sure. That's just funny. That's yeah, just why not? Right there. Yeah. I'll try to put some Cool Running song on there. But at the same time, I don't think Bob Slay should be in the Olympics. So enjoy Cool Runnings as an artifact and not as a future thing. And um, yeah, we'll talk to you guys next time. I will not be in Indian Wells. Courtney will be. So um, tune into WT Insider from Indian Wells and uh, try to figure out if I can do some episode remotely from there, what we can do. Um, I'm sure we'll we link, can. We'll link back up on the East Coast when the tour hits back to my time zone. And we'll catch up with you then. Until then, Courtney, it's my dear friend or whatever you want to be called. It's been real. Bye. Bye. <laughs> the long pause before that. I, I wanted to leave you hanging, so. I could tell. <laughs> Everything you bad. Those guys are in the right. To wave the nation's flag. It's the single greatest honor an athlete could ever have. You know they can't believe we have a bobsled team. Good running. Now look in the mirror and tell me what you see. A badass mother who don't take no crap of nobody. Pride, pride, power, power. A badass mother, a badass mother. I am not a lost little boy, father. I am a man. I am not a lost little boy. I'm an Olympian. Three of these guys can run the hundred and a hundred and five. It was me, but let you get out. They've got everything.